0: First off, uh, I'm Shannon. Uh, I have the privilege of being the Grace Groups Director here at Grace Church. Uh, I want to take a moment and just say welcome to those of you that might be joining us in the venue this morning, or uh, maybe you're joining us in the cafe, uh, or maybe you're joining us online, and you're anywhere from t- Tennessee to Tanzania. Uh, each week, we have a number of people following us from all over the world, and it's awesome that we live in a day and age where technology enables us to do that. And so, just want to say welcome and thank you for being a part of our services. I uh, also want to take a moment and say thank you to Tim for uh, asking me to speak this. Weekend, uh, as many of you know, I'm the new guy on the, I guess the new kid on the block. I guess is the right way to say it. And so I've only been here a couple uh, weeks or a couple months. And uh, if I was Tim and I was in his position, uh, I'd probably be thinking there's a little bit of risk going on here with this. And so uh, just to make sure he felt at ease this week, I did trace him down and I promised him this weekend I wouldn't preach on anything that takes longer than six months to undo. Uh, to fix. And so I want him to feel at ease. Uh, Seriously though, I've been, um, even though I've only been here a couple months, uh, I've known Pastor Tim, some of his team for almost four years now. We belong to a leadership network together. That's how we originally met. Uh, And me personally, I've been involved in full-time ministry for nearly 20 years. It's hard to believe it's been that long. Uh, And actually, interestingly, a couple years before that, I spent a couple years in law enforcement. I was a sheriff's deputy up in the north side of Chicago. Uh, But that really has nothing to do with anything, so we'll move on. Uh, But I just wanted to say thank you to Tim. Um, I'm impressed by his leadership continually, and Grace Church is blessed to have him as our pastor. Uh, And so this weekend, we are wrapping up our series uh, called Lean on Me. Uh, Some of you might remember, four weeks ago, we started it. First week, we talked about Lean on Me for growth. And the passage that Pastor Tim talked about was... Acts chapter 2. And we saw a snapshot of the New Testament church. Peter got up and he preached this amazing message. 3,000 people came to the Lord that day. And the way that they discipled those people, the way that they helped them spiritually grow, was by meeting in homes and in small groups. And so they grew spiritually because they were connected relationally. That's how God designed us to work. All right. And so also that happened to be the weekend where we had 105 baptisms that weekend. And so it was just really neat to see what God did here at Grace Church that weekend. Uh, And so then for those of you that were here the following week, week two, we talked about lean on me for love. And uh, the message that Tim really focused on was one of my absolute favorites. It's John thirteen thirty five. It's where Jesus talks about how people will know you're my disciple by how you love one another. Not how you dress better than one another, not how you are smarter than one another, not how you memorize more scripture verses than one another, but it's how you love one another. People watch how we treat each other. There's something to that. Uh, And so then, for those of you that were here last week, week three was Lean on Me for Grace. uh, And that's when Kent focused on 1 Peter 4 that talks about how we are recipients of God's amazing grace. And so we should be dispensers of God's amazing grace to others because grace is absolutely necessary when it comes to relationships. My favorite quote from last week is that grace is to the soul what oxygen is to the lungs. Uh, And so, if you incidentally, if you happen to miss any of these weeks, just go to visitgracechurch.com. You can always catch up on any of the messages from the prior weeks. Uh, And so this weekend, as we're wrapping up this series, we're going to be talking about three final characteristics that makes Christ-centered community so amazing. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 12. Incidentally, if you need a Bible, uh, just go ahead and raise your hand up. The ushers are walking up right now. They'll gladly give you one. If you don't own a Bible... Please consider that Bible a gift from us to you. We'd much rather you have that, take it home and read it and study it than it be sitting in our auditorium six days out of the seven weeks. Uh, So please take that home with you if you don't have a Bible. Uh, For those of you not familiar with the book of Romans, uh, it's a book that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome, probably around 57 AD. Uh, He was in Corinth at the time, and for those of you that are Bible nerds like I try to be, in the original Greek, the book of Romans is a masterpiece. It is a beautiful book. Uh, And interestingly, one of the reasons, many reasons he wrote it, but one of the reasons he wrote it is because... um, there were some issues that were threatening the community of believers that were meeting in Rome, the church in Rome. And so in this particular chapter, Paul is giving them some practical instructions on Christian living. But interestingly, not just us as individuals, but us as a community, which is what we're talking about today. And so let me read Romans 12. I'm going to start in verse 9 and read through verse 15. Let's read this. Romans 12, 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good Lord, I thank you for the power of your word, and I pray that the Holy Spirit would cause it to come alive in us today. Lord, whether we've read this passage dozens of times, or maybe this is the first time we're hearing it, Lord, allow it to to just come alive inside of us, Lord, that we would walk out of here different than what we walked in. Lord, that's our expectation today, that your word can change us. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity. In Jesus' name, and everyone said... Amen, amen. Well, about 14 years ago now, my wife and I, we decided to take a trip to Orlando to do the whole Disney experience thing. Now, I'm curious, how many of you have been to Disney World down in Orlando? Alright, nearly all of you. Okay, so I was like 29 when I finally got to go, 14 years ago. So I waited till a little bit later in life. I still acted like a 12-year-old. It was really fun. Uh, and so the first, week we, or first day we were there, we went to Magic Kingdom. The second day, we went to Animal Kingdom. And then the third day, we went to something called Epcot. Epcot was pretty interesting. And so the third day, we're walking around Epcot, and we're taking in all the glory that's Disney. Enjoying the beautiful weather that's going on, all that. And then all of a sudden, as we're walking alongside this one building, there was this door that swung open and out walked a gentleman that I nearly knocked over because it happened so quickly. And so I did what typically guys do. I kind of stepped back and said, oh, my bad, my bad, I didn't mean to knock you over and, and, and just kind of did that thing. And then interestingly, when my eyes started to refocus, that's when I realized that the guy I had nearly knocked over was Michael Jackson, the pop star. I was just kind of just walked right into him there, and he kind of popped out that door. And so, uh, the the interesting thing was though, is as as we're standing there, there was this awkward moment between us. It's like he was kind of waiting for me to say something, I was waiting for him to say something. We weren't sure what we were either of them going to say, and so we just had this awkward moment. And you know how you have that inner voice that just tells you, you know, talks to you the whole time. My inner voice is screaming at me, "Say something." It's Michael Jackson. This is your chance. Say something to him. You know, say anything. Tell him you like his music, or why only one white glove, or, you know, do you know Jesus? We could uh, let's talk about Jesus, or what's wrong with your nose? I could have said anything, <laughs> but nothing would come out at that point. It was weird, and so the only thing, no kidding, the only thing I could do is I took a half a step back, I lifted my camera, and I just took a picture <laughs> I was so lame that day. I was like a tourist. It was just ridiculous. At that point, he's already turning away from me going, you loser. It was weird. Okay, so what happened next, though, was so interesting Because at one point, someone yelled, it's Michael Jackson. And all of a sudden, all these people came running from everywhere. They all wanted to see the King of Pop. All right, and so I'll never forget this, but there was this older guy kind of running towards the back of the crowd. And by this point, my wife and I had been pushed back steadily. And so he looks over at me. He's running towards where Michael Jackson is. And he yells at me. He goes, who is it? And I yell back, it's Michael Jackson. And he yells, who? (laughs) But he didn't stop running. That's what was so weird to me. He just kept on going. So you would think that you would stop if you don't know who you're running towards. But because everybody was going that direction, everybody was so excited, he just wanted to be a part of what everyone else was experiencing. And that's when it hit me. You see, it didn't matter um, how many, you know, whether what gender, what race, all these people were coming together, all these different backgrounds, young, old Didn't matter how much money they made, didn't matter any of that stuff, but they were all coming together, forming this little star-crazed community around this pop star, and it was fascinating for me to watch, right? And so that little story there, as silly as it might seem, it just, it perfectly highlights the unique nature of community in our lives. And so maybe you've never thought about this, maybe you've never even cared about this, but there's just something really special, there's something beautiful, there's something attractive about community, isn't there? And so whether you're talking about a a Michael Jackson fan club or whether you're talking about a cycling group, you get together on Saturday mornings and you cycle, or maybe you're talking about a a fantasy football team you put together at work or maybe a downtown Abbey viewing party, which I will never be a part of, amen, community just has this, this unique ability to draw people in, to make us feel like we belong to something bigger than ourselves, all right? It's a beautiful thing, and it gives us a sense of unity. It gives us a sense of purpose. It's almost addictive in nature a little bit. And really, that's what community is. If I can simplify the definition the best, I would say community is common unity. It's when you have a common denominator, and unity forms around whatever common denominator that is. And so whether it's cycling or watching your favorite TV show with all of your friends every week, whatever the case is, that's community. And the cool thing is, is that the attractive nature of community isn't a mistake. It's not happenstance. In fact, it's exactly how God created it to work. Because you see, inside of us, community is baked right into our DNA. We were designed for community. In fact, just for a moment, let's do this. Let's go all the way back to the beginning, and let's look at what community, how God originally created community to work, right? And so let me ask this. How many of you grew up going to Sunday school? Raise your hand up high. Okay, a lot of you did, all right? And so do you guys remember these, those things called the prehistoric PowerPoints, the, the flannel board, Remember that? Little paper cutouts, and your teacher would move them all around. It's like, you know, prior PowerPoint. Uh, And so they would always teach about creation. Genesis 1 was always one of the lessons. And so my Sunday school teacher would say, God created the heavens and the earth, and and all the animals, and all the plants. And at the end of each creation day, he'd step back, he'd assess everything that he just created, and he would declare it all what? Good. Everyone say, good. He declared good, right? But interestingly, just a couple verses later, when you come to Genesis 2, out of nowhere, God suddenly says something isn't good. He says it's not good for man to be alone. Now, let me get this straight. God, you're you're perfect. You just declared everything good. You created everything. There's no sin in the world at all. And yet you just said something isn't good. So which is it? I don't know if you ever caught that, but that's like a glaring contradiction. At least I've talked to atheists that have grabbed onto that. All right, but here's what's happening in this particular verse, in this, this chapter. Back in Genesis 1, we see this, this triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And within God, there's perfect community. He has perfect community within himself. Then he creates man. And you notice it says in Genesis 1, 26, let us create mankind in our image. You hear the plural there? Let us create mankind in our image. And so what he does is he creates man. And so what he sees is that he's got perfect community with himself. He's got perfect community with man. But he realized that there was, mankind had no community of his own. And so when he said that something wasn't good, he wasn't suggesting that he made a mistake. He wasn't suggesting that he did something wrong. But what he was saying is I can do something more. I could add to this. And so, of course, then we know he created Eve uh, to be a helpmate, to be a partner to Adam, to be an equal for the rest of their lives together. Unfortunately, though, if we fast forward just a couple of verses later in Genesis 3, 6, what we see is that Adam and Eve, they, they did the colossal blunder of all human history. They ate of the fruit. Everyone say, boo. And then two verses later, check this out in Genesis 3.8. Here's what happens. Let's read this. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. How are you going to play hide and go seek with God? Really? It just goes to show you how sin can just make us dumb in that moment. It's like, Adam, I know you're behind that rock. Eve, I see you over there. But here's what's interesting about this is that at that exact moment, that was when community was fractured between us and God. Our relationship between God and us was broken, it was fractured. But interestingly, so was our relationship with each other. All right? In fact, some of you might remember back in Genesis 2, we saw that that it, it said that Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. And here's a little hint. In the Hebrew, that word naked doesn't just mean without apparel. It actually means that they were open. They were vulnerable. They were fully exposed. There was nothing hidden because they felt no shame whatsoever. And yet the minute that sin came into the world, you notice they ran and hid from God because now that relationship was broken. And then they ran and hid from each other by putting on clothes because now they felt shame. And so the relationship between God and man was shattered. And then the relationship with us as people was shattered as well. And sadly, we still live in a world where community is fractured, where community is broken, right? And and, and interestingly, community didn't just, our desire for community didn't just disappear because sin came into the world. In fact, we still have a desire for community within us. It's just that it became distorted, right? In fact, a couple of verses later in Genesis 11, another one of my favorite uh, Sunday school stories when I was young is, is when all of mankind was together. It says, in the plains of Shinar, Right? And they were all together, one big community, but except for they took God out of the middle of their community, they put something else, the Tower of Babel. Remember the story? And they wanted to build a tower to the heavens. And I love the Hebrew in that particular passage because what it says is that God, it's like God is poking fun at the humans just a little bit. He had to come down to see their high tower, it says. He had to come down to see their little Lincoln log Tower. It's so cute. And when he got there, he realized that The desire for community was still so strong in us, and yet it was distorted by sin that he had to do something about it because he knew it was going to be a problem. So what did he do? He dispersed mankind in opposite directions, confusing their languages. And to this day, we live in that fractured community, whether it's between nations, whether it's in our own nation, whether it's in our neighborhoods, whether it's in our homes. We live in a state of broken community. In fact, I would suggest, and you can agree or disagree with me today, but I would suggest it's getting worse in our world. Right? And here's an interesting trend that I've noticed, and I won't go too far down this road. I don't have a lot of time, but 75 years ago, we used to build homes with porches on the front, right? We even had a room in the front called the parlor where people would sit. It was a sitting room, right? And our porches were the front door to our neighborhoods. People would walk by. They'd come up on the porch. We'd talk. We'd have lemonade. I wasn't around 75 years ago. I don't know what else they did, but it was the front door to the, to the community, right? But now, 75 years later, when we build homes, our porches have migrated to the back, and what do we call them? decks. And just to make sure that nobody gets to us in our decks, we put big fences around our backyard because it's our castle, right? And so what happens is is we come home from work. We have a hard day. We can't wait to get home. We drive in the garage. We shut the garage door. We hibernate in our castles, right? Cutting ourselves effectively off from our neighborhood, from our community. But ironically, we then jump online and try to connect with the whole world. And I think in a lot of ways, we're settling for being connected but we don't have true community anymore. Just because you have 2,000 Facebook friends doesn't mean that you aren't going to be lonely, that you aren't going to face depression. You would think in a day and age where we are so connected more than any other generation, you can literally text, pick up a phone, and call someone on the other side of the planet instantly. You would think depression and loneliness would be gone by now, but instead it's at an all-time high. I think it's because we're substituting just being connected with true community. True community. So knowing that, thankfully, God didn't just disperse mankind and then leave us to fend for ourselves, but instead, he sends his one and only son to die for us, to restore our relationship between us and God. Someone needs to say amen there. It's in my notes, you have to, okay? But here's the cool thing, and this is something we often overlook. Not only did he restore our relationship with us and God, but he restored our relationship with each other. That's what Paul says in a couple of verses earlier in Romans 12. He says this, So in Christ we, though many, form one body, each member belongs to all the others. One body, many parts, we all belong to one another. And so what that means technically is that our faith, it can never just be a private or personal thing. We tend to view our faith as being very private, very personal, right? But according to what Paul just said there, that's, that, that's not the case. That's not even how we were created. It, it can't just be a me thing. It has to be a we thing because we are part of a community. And think about it this way. If I drop something on my foot, the rest of my body knows. I can't just say, I'm not paying attention to your foot. I'm not listening. So our faith is a community thing, not just a me thing. It's a we thing, right? And so bottom line, we were created for this beautiful thing called community. And yes, community is awesome and amazing in so many other areas in life. We have community around so many cool things. But if we're lacking Christ-centered community, we're lacking the one thing we were created for. And all other other community is subpar to Christ-centered community. That's how he created us. And so knowing that, Paul goes on in our passage here, he gives us some of the ingredients of what that Christ-centered community looks like. And so in verse 9, he says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And interestingly, that word in the Greek there for genuine, it it literally, the word is anapokritos. I like that word, anapokritos. And what it means is without hypocrisy, without a mask. You know, a hypocrite in ancient Greece was an actor. They put on masks, and so we still think of it the same way. We just use it in a negative context now, don't we? And so basically what Paul is saying here is that we are called to love each other without wearing a mask, without being fake. Let me ask this. And, and be honest, because you're in church, and if you lie, it's two strikes, okay? How many of you have ever gotten a fight with your spouse or a family member on the way to church on the weekend before? Raise your hand up high. Okay, thank you for your honesty. Those of you with your hands down, I'm going to assume that you're still fighting. Is that? Okay. I'll, just, I'll be vulnerable here. I'll go with my, me, all right? This is what happens. All right? it, it's happened to me, right? And even all the years I've served as a pastor, it's just, for some reason, the worst fights are on our way to when we're coming together, together as a community. There's something about that, you know? Right? But, but here's what happens in my life. And maybe this isn't you, this is just me, but my, for instance, my wife and I will have a fight on the way to church. I don't even know what the fight's about anymore. We're fighting about the fight, you know? And so we get out of the car. Right, and, and and we're mumbling and we're grumbling underneath our breath. We're walking through the parking lot. Clearly something's wrong because our body language is screaming and something isn't right. We, you know, we put the kids between us because we don't want to walk next to each other. The kids are a great buffer for that. You know? And so as we're walking up to the building, there's always, whether it's Grace Church or any other church, there's always a greeter that just swings the door open and says, good morning. And in that instant, we go from mumbling and grumbling underneath our breath to, good morning. Praise the Lord. Today is the day the Lord has made. And we just put on this front, don't we? Be honest, we've done that. Because there's no way we're going to let anyone see what's really happening in our lives at that moment. But here's what scares me when we do that. You see, our community, our church, it should be the one place we come to be the most real, the most vulnerable. If we can't do it here. And yet I have a hunch that the church is often the one place we come to where we put on the biggest mask, because we want people to think our lives are good, everything is fine, our marriage is perfect, our kids are so well behaved. Never mind the fact we just threatened their life in the parking lot. <laughs> I will smite you today if you do, do you, in church. Mm, we do that, don't we? Paul is talking against that kind of community. To here, he's speaking against it. He's saying anapokritos. We you love without hypocrisy? Write this down if you're taking notes. The church isn't for perfect people. It's for imperfect people in community with a perfect God. The church isn't for perfect people. You ever hear someone say, I'm not good enough to go to church. I just want to scream back, I'm not either. In fact, I tell people when they're looking for a church, if you ever find a perfect church, don't go to it. You'll ruin it. We're not perfect. Only God is perfect. So here's a thought, what would happen if when we came together, we took off that mask, intentionally we're vulnerable with each other, and then in the midst of doing that, we loved each other on apocritos, without hypocrisy, without being fake, even through the imperfections that we all have, and we all have them. Honestly, I have a hunch that that kind of authentic, loving community is where other people that would then want to come in and take off their mask and be vulnerable, and experience anapokritos. And the cool thing is, is when we do that, our community, it will continue to become a place of safety. Grace Church will be a place of safety, a place of authentic love, a place that draws all people into common unity with God and with each other. And here's the beautiful thing about, about christ center community, is that it doesn't Matter, the, d- the dividing lines that we have in culture, it erases all of them. Red and yellow, black and white, we're all precious in His sight. I just wrote that. <laughs> but that's the beauty of Christ-centered community, is it just, it erases all those divisions that we throw up. It doesn't matter if how much money you make, it doesn't matter what your ethnic background is, we're many parts to one body. Revelation 7, we're all heading there anyway. One tongue, one tribe, right? We're all going back there. That's when God brings it all together. So Christ-centered community, it brings authenticity. It breeds authenticity. And listen, if it doesn't, I would start wondering if Christ is really at the center. So second thing we see here, moving on, verses 12 and 13, let me read them again. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. So the second thing we see here in Christ-centered community is that it, it offers care and support. First thing is authenticity, authentic love. Second thing is care and support. Uh, Many years back when I was in uh, law enforcement, I was working a detail one Saturday morning. It was a marathon. Uh, I don't even know how long of a marathon it was, a full half marathon. I just knew it was a lot further than I could run. All right, and so my detail that particular morning was I was supposed to shut down one of the major intersections so the race could go through the intersection and nobody would get hurt or anything like that. Uh, And so anyway, I'll never forget this. I get there and I shut down the intersection uh, and instantly just a crowd gathered right? There's hundreds of people there to watch their friends and family run by in the race. And so as the race starts and I see the runners coming, I'm watching several go by, several go by, and then I lock eyes with this guy. He's maybe a hundred yards from me, and he is just as pale as can be. He's sweating profusely, and it looks like he's fighting for every single step as he's going. I could tell he wasn't in a good place. And so I kind of watched him as he got a little bit closer, a little bit closer before he was going to go around the corner at the intersection. And about 50 yards from me, All of a sudden, he drops like a sack of potatoes. He just goes down hard. Scrapes up his knees, his elbow is bleeding. He wasn't in a good place. But it's what happened next that surprised me. Despite the fact that there were hundreds of people standing on the curbs, not 20 feet away from this guy, nobody moved a muscle. Everybody just stared at him. He's on the ground. He's panting for every breath. He's bleeding. He's in a really rough place. But everybody just stood there watching him. Let me ask this, have you ever felt that way maybe in life, where it seems like your world is crashing down around you, nothing is going right, and it seems like people all around you, people that you know, are just content in being spectators and just watching it instead of engaging and being there? I'm sure this is how that guy felt that day. So what happened next was pretty cool. In fact, let me ask this, who do you think eventually helped that runner up? Other runners. Other runners did. They came up behind him within, I mean, it was within a minute. They scooped him up. They put his arms around their shoulders. And then they walked him off to the side where there was an ambulance waiting. And they stayed there for a moment or two just to make sure he was getting the care that he needed. I mean, they they cared more about the runner than the race. At the expense of their own marathon time, they did that. Can you imagine that? And I remember seeing that and thinking to myself, of course it was other runners who helped him out. They're his community. That just makes sense. They train. They know what it's like. They share the experience. They know what it's like to be dehydrated. And they know what it's like to be tired. They go the ups and downs, and they, they knew. And so because of that, they had his back more than anyone else. The kind of community that Paul is talking about here, Christ-centered community, he's telling us that we should offer that same kind of care and support for each other, brothers and sisters in Christ. Because look at what he says. He says, we're supposed to rejoice with each other in hope, which means that we celebrate together when life is going well and we're full of hope. Whether there's a birth of a baby or someone graduates high school or college or someone gets a new job, whatever the case is, James 1, 17 tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Do you have a community that celebrates and rejoices with you when life is good and things are going well? Then he goes on to say, he says, to be patient in tribulation, which means we stand by each other when the world is crashing down around other people. We stand by them. We help them, right? And so death of a loved one or losing a job, whatever the case might be, Second Corinthians 1 tells us to comfort others in afflictions with the same comfort that Christ has given us. And then he goes on to say that we should be constant in prayer, which means we should be constant in prayer. (laughs) We should be helping each other. We should be praying for each other and uplifting each other and encouraging each other, encouraging our friends that are going through rough times to take their eyes off their problems and put their eyes on the problem solver because he is able, not us. And then he goes on to say this. Verse 13, he says that we're supposed to contribute to the needs of fellow believers and we're supposed to practice hospitality. And interestingly, that word in the Greek for hospitality, or for practice, it's an action word. It means to pursue, right? Don't just practice hospitality, it's to pursue people. And so that means that if somebody's going through a rough time or their world is crashing down around them, you don't wait for them to come to you and have to ask you for help. If you know they have a need, we pursue people and we offer them help, we offer them support, just like Christ pursued us with his son. It's an action word. In fact, that's what James, the half-brother of Jesus, says. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that, he says? So also, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is what? It's dead. So bottom line, if you're taking notes, you can write this part down, but we're not called to be passive spectators in Christ-centered community. We're called to be active supporters, to pursue each other to care for each other, to support each other. In fact, I'll be honest, that's one of my favorite things that I loved about law enforcement is the kind of support. Of oh, the other officers had my back no matter what. And the odd thing is, is there were some officers on the force that I really didn't get along with, right? They just, they were immoral, they did wrong things, and I just didn't like them all that much. But you know what? When push came to shove, and if things got tough, they had my back no matter what to the point that they would give their life for me and I would have done the same for them. I think, let me say, I believe, I believe that christ Center community should set the industry standard when it comes to care and support for each other. Not the police department. As great as that is. But we were designed for this. We should do the best at it. That's what makes christ Center community so amazing is the care and support Last but not least, let's jump down to verse fourteen and fifteen, where Paul says, "Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep." So the third and last thing we see here is that Christ-centered community it it brings healing. First thing was authentic love, authenticity. Secondly, it was care and support. And now, third, we see healing. Now, before I go any further, I just want to get this out there. Just take off my mask for a moment. Be honest. I don't really like verse fourteen. Can I say that? Am I allowed to say that? I don't really like it. When Paul says to bless those who persecute you, I'd have been okay if he left that part out. And, and so, I don't know. It's, really, it's, it's the opposite of what my flesh wants to do. You guys, can you relate to that? And, and so maybe you guys are like way holier than I am, and that could definitely be the case, but my human nature has a little bit of Jason Bourne in it, maybe. Maybe a little Quin Eastwood mixed in. And so when people, like, persecute me or they wrong me, they they cut me off in traffic. I hate it when that happens. It's like my human nature just wants to fold them into a little pretzel like Jason Bourne. But thankfully, because of the heart that Christ has replaced in me, he's given me his heart. And he's grown me over the years. He's changed my heart in so many ways that that I no longer feel and think that way. It was a process. I'm way better than I was even 20 years ago. But he's created in me a new heart to give me the kind of compassion that I lack in my own nature. All right? But, but here's what I've learned over the years. Is that when I choose to bless those who persecute me. Like Paul says in verse 14. I immediately find myself living in verse 15 where he then says rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And the reason's really simple. You see, when I choose to bless people who seek to persecute me, it instantly disarms them. People don't know what to do with that. It's like it takes the bullets out of their guns that they want to harm you with. It it takes the baseball bat out of their hand. When you bless someone who's seeking to persecute you, that just begins to disarm a person. And you know what I've learned every single time is when I do that, I find out that the person who means to harm and means to wrong me is hurting and broken themselves. You ever hear the saying, hurt people, hurt people? It is so true. But because God created a heart in me where I can actually choose to bless those that want to harm me, now I've got this open door in their life or maybe I can speak encouragement into their lives. If I'd answered persecution with persecution, that door would have been shut. But then it's open, and what I can do then is maybe give them anapokritos, authentic love despite their hurts, then I can give them the kind of care and support that they might be lacking in community. Maybe they don't have Christ-centered community in their life. And then I can maybe walk through the healing process with them too so they become whole. One of the things that I love most about Christ-centered community is I get to see firsthand of what it can truly accomplish in someone's life. Watch this video.